Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from wildlife filmmakers Keith Scully of Silverback Films and Chad and Hunter from Wild Bear Entertainment about the evolution of natural history documentaries and their coverage of climate change. And from BBC Studios' Melanie Romani about the kind of programming she's looking to acquire for the company's channels around the world. UK blue-chip natural history producer Silverback Films is behind series including Our Planet for Netflix and Perfect Planet for the BBC, plus a string of one-off feature docs for Disney. The company, set up by former BBC execs Alistair Fothergill and Keith Scully, was acquired by All3 Media 18 months ago, and the latter spoke to Clive Whittingham about how things have progressed since then, helping bolster the business at a time of economic uncertainty as commissioners grow more cautious. Scully argues the growth natural history programming has enjoyed over the past few years has peaked and the challenge now is to embrace narrative in a manner that has made true crime so successful. He also discusses the difficulties of relaying vital environmental messages via television as evidence of an escalating climate emergency mount. Silverback, uh, I mean, the last time we spoke, this deal had just gone through, but we're a few years, well, 18 months, I suppose, into it, uh, your, your acquisition by all three media. How, is it, how has it changed the company? What have you been able to do? How is, how is Silverback different now with that backing? Well, it's, it, it's, it's been a very nice union. Um, all three media is a company that, that very much encourages companies to carry on with how they work and, and, and um, leave you creatively to you know, run your business as best you can but then we have the whole resource of the bigger group to be able to help us find new business and enhance our capability to do bigger business deals and so on and so forth we now have all three as our distributor as well which is really really good we've got um a new bbc project called parenthood which we're just starting and all three are our distributor for that uh plimsoll got had a similar deal recently with with itv another big sort of bristol um natural history they do other stuff but natural history production company is this uh is this gearing up for a, a sort of push into really into premium factual is that the the trend that this you know people sort of arming themselves up to go into this premium factual space in a, in a in a bigger way i know that's the the space you guys are always uh, have always operated in yeah there's there's an element of that um i think what you find as a reasonably small indie on your own dealing with a bigger and bigger kind of really a hollywood landscape of um commissioners it's it's if you're a, a small fish dealing in, in in that huge kind of pond it, it is difficult but it can be and um, not necessarily selling the ideas but structuring deals and so on and so so forth so actually being part of a bigger organization and bigger organizations have more clout is very very helpful and yes if, if cash is limited at certain points and so on and so forth, when you're a small company, that becomes very difficult. When you're a part of a bigger group, again, that's also better. But it's, yeah, it's really having having that advice, that expertise of a big group around you that um, makes life so much, so much easier. <laughs> it's been, it's been, well, we hear, I, I, I presume this is the case. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been, it's been a, almost a great time to be a producer because there's just been so many places that you can pitch your show. Whereas once upon a time, if you were a natural history producer, you would pitch it to the BBC and if they didn't want it, you kind of had a problem. But there's all these streamers and it's kind of a seller's market. I, I wonder, do you, is that, do you see that continuing? Do you see 
Yeah, that that proliferation continuing, given the economic situation we're apparently heading into, and streamers are now sort of seeing their subs plateauing and and subsiding somewhat. I think they're two things, and and um, I've sort of seen this trend happen a few times before. Because as you tell from the colour of my hair, I'm quite old, um, and um, so we had absolutely unprecedented levels of growth in the last three years, um, brought about by new clients coming into the natural history space. Um, I think, though, that the downside of that, there's been a saturation of natural history. I think it used to be that natural history was used by certain broadcasters to distinguish themselves in the marketplace. Um, It's now quite difficult for anyone, even the BBC, to distinguish themselves as being the place which has the best natural history in the world, so and so, because there's there's a lot of good stuff around on lots of different kind of platforms. So I think that all of the commissioning bodies are probably be looking at this and think, hang on, is this volume helping us going 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 forward? And um, we're already seeing kind of signs that this this big boom, this peak is is definitely tipping over. Laid over that, you've got the economic situation, both kind of global in terms of just money recession, da da da, but also you know has streaming peak. You know headlines around about Warner and HBO and Discovery. Um, we've heard about Netflix and so on and so forth. So there's a there's a general trend. But where the trend is definitely going is everyone wants to be more distinct. And I think the challenge for natural history producers in the next coming four or five years is going to be, are your series really going to stand out from the crowd? Um, I think there's too much that looks just too similar. And everyone has kind of got, you know, got the great technique, the, the, the kit and what have you. The budgets are big enough to afford high-end shooting. So it becomes harder to stand out from the crowd. And, and and, uh, but that is going to be, that's the big thing at Silverback we're completely focused on, is making sure that you can invent things that the audience looks at and thinks, wow, that's fresh. Landmark is used a lot. It's used very loosely. But a landmark is something that stands out from the horizon. There's no point just saying, oh, we threw a lot of money at it and we shot it the way we always did. And that's a landmark. No, you have to earn landmark status. The audience tells you if it's landmark. That used to be, you know, uh, finding a new animal behavior, right? But that's, <laughs> filming something that's never been filmed before must be incredibly difficult now. So does the the standing out come from tech innovations and things like that? Tech can always help you. And indeed, in the past, you know, whether it be stabilized cameras, drones have had a huge kind of Im- impact. The issue with tech is that other people can jump onto the same tech very, very fast. So it doesn't necessarily make you stand out. Now, I think standout now is about narrative and actually going back to the basics of filmmaking. It's interesting, we work with um, with Disney a lot, making these Disney nature films. We work very closely with the, the animation studio there. And what the animators always say, doesn't matter how good your animation is or whether it's new look animation or what have you. That's just the audience goes with that. It's the story. And um, it's, it's it's the same, I think, coming up now with natural history. It's going to be, so what's what's the new grabby story? What's, what's the thing that really makes this compelling to watch? And I, th- I think just, to, to add to that, I think especially in series, I think any commissioner will tell you 
you with the series, there tends to be a drop off um, from the first episode to the last, which of course, you know, drama goes to a huge, huge effort to make sure that doesn't happen. And I think we in natural history are going to have to work far, far harder to make sure the narrative through the series makes it compelling to watch the whole thing, because otherwise buyers are not going to be so keen. True Crimes mastered that, hasn't it? In factual, those you see those four part Netflix series where there's always there's always a bit at the end where you're like, well, you think you know where we're going next, but actually we're going in this direction, and you have to watch the next episode to find out. True Crime has been a real sort of master of that. Is that is natural history needs to sort of learn that same lesson almost? Completely right. You need a cliffhanger, what have you? And what happens with some natural history series? And you know, I put my hand up. Some of this, you could probably put the episodes out in any order you want um, and swap, swap, swap them around. But if you can do that, you haven't got an underlying narrative running through your series, which is going to drive the audience from show to show. And um, I think increasingly that's going to be really important. It's known as a as a genre with um, long lead times, long filming times, and, and therefore quite expensive. And Netflix have, have chucked a lot of money at it and the BBC series that are expensive series. With the situation that we touched on earlier around the economy and new re- potential recession, the ad market problems that that comes with, the declining subscriptions that that comes with. Is is natural history threatened by that? Is there not going to be as much money sloshing around for these things? Or, or is it is it immune? Because a lot of these series are filmed over sort of four years, aren't they? I don't know. No, it's, it's, it is definitely not immune. And I imagine, I'm not a broadcaster, but I imagine they're looking pretty hard right now at the data they have. And of course, people these days, especially streamers, got a lot of data. And they'll be looking hard at what works and what doesn't work in terms of audience return. And what you will see is the stuff that doesn't produce a high audience return will go. They will just stop doing it. I think a lot of streamers rushed into the business thinking they had to have inventory. They had to have a lot, you know, just there so so that subscribers could see that they had a lot in, in every genre, actually, not just natural history. So and you can't afford to do top end for everything. But I suspect, I wouldn't know this, but I expect the stuff um, in the middle that is still quite expensive, but not necessarily stand out, um, is probably the bit that will be looked at, interrogated very, very closely. And I would expect that that'll go. My guess is, is that big standout series will stay because they do tend to still drive subscribers and audience. Um, I think it's the it's the middle ground and possibly the low ground the volume that will go um and i think that's going to happen quite fast it's not really a genre that lends itself very well to a, a cheap and cheerful 30 30 times 30 sort of quick turnaround series is it really it's uh... No, so that said, I think if you can find a really good narrative and a really good catchy idea that has got low price, you know, low price is always attractive. So if you can find that and you can deliver it and it draws a big audience, boom. Um, but if it looks too familiar and similar to other things and the audience don't stick to it, then it'll go. And I think commissioners, well, I speak to a lot of commissioners and already I've, I've noticed there's a very much change in being a lot more cautious and analytical about what they buy. Having a big name, I mean, you used to work with the biggest biggest name in, in this and, and, and still do on projects, obviously, but um, big name narrators on these, is that a way to distinguish or is that 
a bit of a, a bit of a gimmick. I mean, we obviously see Hollywood actors narrating natural history and things. I, I, I think it's again um, how it's done. Yes, clearly, you know, when you have a jewel like David Attenborough to work on a show, that David transforms it in so many kind of ways and, and takes on a level of authorship that is quite unique. So, so he, he, he kind of stands stands apart. But um, absolutely, you have to bring in other um, narrators, hosts. I think some um, streamers, channels use hosts a lot more. I think it's a, certainly uh, Disney National Ge- Geographic. It, that seems to be a big part of their ecology. I think streamers like Netflix don't tend to. So so I think it's horses for courses. But I can imagine in this, this rush to differentiate, these things might become more extreme. Um, and um, we'll see quite a divergence in, in kind of style in terms of hosts. The last time we spoke, it was... It was a very different world at that point. We were all sort of trapped in our homes and and not allowed out. And we were talking about natural history being that either the dream genre because it's small crews in isolated places, or the nightmare genre because it's lots of air travel and travel restrictions that we had at that point. One of the ways round it at that point was the use of local crews. And the positive that potentially was going to come out of it is they would be upskilled and you could use them in the future, so that we're not putting crews on jetliners anymore to to get to these remote places which is kind of a contradiction with natural history, climate change and, and all of that. Has that happened? Has that local? Are those local crews there now and being used? Or as the restrictions have dropped, have we just got back on the plane again? I, th- I think it depends on what kind of show you're actually making. I mean, right through the pandemic, we made a series with Prince William called The Earthshot Price, but that was largely, in a way, a documentary style. And what we found during that, that there were incredible um, talents, all over from, you know, deepest Mongolia, to West Africa and so on and so forth who, who, who could actually do a really fantastic job um, and I think that uh, certainly we've very much continued down that line using remote crews very specialist natural history it's kind of harder to grow that talent base abroad because it, it takes we'll say it takes about 10 years for, for someone to become a, a top notch wildlife cinematographer I think it's starting but it's a slower it is a slower process so it's it's kind of in a way horses for four courses, but but certainly now, if you say you want a really good drone operator, a lot of places in the world you be crazy to fly someone over to, to, to do that job. There's going to be someone really, really good in country. Uh, we were talking before I turned the mic on. You're sitting in Bristol. I'm sitting in London. It's hotter than the sun in my house today. <laughs> and I'm looking out on my poor garden there. There's been no rain for months. Yeah. There's going to be no rain for months. The climate emergency is is here. Uh, you know, wildfires in the middle of London last month. Just absolutely insane. It's. I've asked you this question before. How do you make that entertaining and tell it on screen without hectic people how do you get that message across I presume you know every natural history program it's it's front and center of the of the rhetoric how do you get that across in modern natural history programming particularly when there is despite everything we can see literally out of my window in front of me here a portion of the audience that is even more militant in their denial of it than than ever before how how do you sort of yeah I mean it's a line? it's a weird problem isn't it because you have to say come on everyone look at the evidence outside your door look at the news feeds you see every day the papers and so on and so forth you know the the predictions that scientists say were going to happen 20 years ago are more than coming true actually it's happening faster than the i remember the predictions 20 years 
ago. And actually stuff is happening far, far faster. And if you look at the projections for 20 years forward, you'd think, wow, this is nothing what we're going through. So so um, the problem is staring everyone in the face. But still, politically, are you sick? Well, actually, no, that would be wrong. At COP26, there were some very, very incru- crucial things changed, which I think put the world on a different trajectory. But that was largely businesses getting it and businesses changing it. Businesses changed beyond all recognition in terms of their view of climate change in the last 10 years. It's a complete flip. And we can't underestimate how important that's going to be. Governments, if anything, are now way behind business. But have we changed electorates so that they really, really push for politicians? No, I don't think we have. So clearly, there's still a bigger job to do in terms of the communication industry of of communicating these kind of facts. And um, I think it still boils down to what we tried to do with our planet. You've got to find a way to reach a big audience. You've got to not preach to the converted. You've got to convert the people who need to convert it. So you've, you've got to get to a big audience. And then you've got to tell these stories in interesting ways. And the crucial thing is you have to say there's a way out of this thing. Um, Because if you don't say there's a way out of this thing, I think humans by nature, and I'm going to be one of those humans, you just get very depressed. You think, well, what can I do? Can't leave people in a place of hopelessness. So we have to kind of galvanize all of these things. Big audiences, clear about the problem, solution, solution, solution. And it's all there. The solutions are there. So that's our policy anyway. You, uh, I mean, as a as a, a wildlife filmmaker, more at the forefront of this, and have been for for years than than most of us. You get to see it firsthand more than most of us. The damage and the uh, what what's been caused and what's still what's still happening. Do you despair at some of the the rhetoric and political debate and sort of level of understanding of this? Or <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it I really do dis- despair. I mean, I'm especially passionate about the oceans. The oceans are being completely wrecked, largely by industrial fishing. I mean, that's people talk about plastic and so on and so forth, but the big thing that's wrecking, and that can be fixed overnight. It's legislation. I mean, it can be done overnight. And um, it, I despair because it's the biggest carbon sump in the world. I mean, they just say, you know, that there's facts that if you just stop, say, bottom trawling the ocean, that accounts for the emissions of all of aviation. It's on this scale. And everyone's worried about air miles and, and you know, flying in an airplane. Well, just stop bottom trawling. And look how much money is made from bottom trawling the ocean. Nothing. Most of it's subsidized. So there's the bit that makes me mad is the inconsistency. You know, if you were just to look at this thing logically and say, we're in a war, at present we're arming the enemy and we're destroying our own defenses. That's no way. You're not going to win a war that way. So why don't you just starve the enemy of its weaponry and build your defenses? I mean, that's how you win a war. Boom. And um, we just we just don't do that. And that's what I despair about. If you just look at the whole thing logically, it's so straightforward what needs to be done. And it's not particularly painful. And, and so that's, but, you know, I know this stuff, so... I've clearly not communicated that well enough to the world. <laughs> Are you um you've oh, you've made some great series for the BBC in the past and and a lot of that what you've just said there has has been in that has been in those series. When the BBC now Tim Davies director general has made a huge sort of push towards impartiality and telling both sides. I think they were even on record last year at saying well if enough people believed in a flat earth we would have to pay attention to that and 
sort of slightly worrying quotes like that for me for a, a broadcaster that's meant to entertain, educate and inform. That was the original idea. Are you still able to make programmes that say that for the for the BBC or do you have to nod towards the people that say, well, you know, the Earth's always had a changing climate. It's just it's changing in this direction at the moment. It's nothing to do with us. Uh, I, th- I think that the two steps with this, the first thing is our broadcast. I wouldn't say even necessarily let's single out the BBC, but the, there's, there is a general thing. First, first and foremost, is a broadcaster, streamer, or whoever prepared to make a show about this kind of issue? That's question kind of one. one. Or do they think, oh, that's not going to get a big enough audience, or uh, it's going to be a bit depressing, or it's going to land us in trouble? Um, and then step two is, are they giving give you the freedom to tell exactly the story that you want to to do? And um, with Silverback, well, some of the films we make, we get donor money. Um, to be able to make sure that we have that complete in editorial in independence. And that's to try, that's to get away from that problem. Um, what we believe in terms of my thing about impartiality, science is is science. Science, good science, if it's proper science, it's peer-reviewed. You just report on peer-reviewed process. Um, and science is what allows a jumbo jet to stay in the air. Um, and you can trust it because jumbo jets do by and large stay in the air because of science. So so you, you shouldn't ever, science is not um, impartiality in science and people do, and even the BBC gets muddled sometimes. Um, and I was, you know, I was a senior manager in the BBC for a, a long, a long time and I saw that model. And it's just really, really important, I think, for programme makers like us that you just root yourself in the science. There are not a facts and alternative facts. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It, 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 it's about looking really, really hard at the consensus of scientific opinion and um, on climate change now. I mean, that is just huge. And it's blindingly obvious. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, literally, you, it's literally here. Exactly, you, you you can see look A goes to B, and and um, you live anywhere in the world, and you you can see it happening. So, but it's it's um, yeah, you've got to stick with the science. What are you guys working on at the moment? Loads of stuff you can't tell me about. I'm sure there's always that. I'm afraid, um, <laughs> and um, but but we, we've still we've got some um, exciting series for the BBC, and we're doing some tough work for Netflix, and and also for. Um, our old partners Disney Nature so I hope that what you know I start, we started this conversation talking about the need to stand out I think we've got some stuff that could stand out and surprise I hope so uh, which which will um, yeah hope, hopefully bring in big audiences but also really sort of surprise people I still feel there's so much we can all do to create new telly and new experiences for the audience and to excite people about the natural history world in a new way and tell this really important story get that co2 number down and um, okay i can't wait to see it looking forward to as always to, to to seeing what's next from from you guys thanks for spending time with us today to to discuss the issues that we have and i look forward to seeing your program soon thanks so much keith scoley Former BBC natural history producer, director and writer Chadden Hunter joined Australian independent producer Wild Bear Entertainment last year as an exec producer. Having worked on series including Seven Worlds One Planet, Planet Earth Two and Frozen Planet, the University of Queensland educated zoologist and wildlife biologist brought 14 years of experience with him working on some of the biggest landmark wildlife series ever made. 
he spoke to Clive Whittingham about how the genre has evolved in recent years, going from the most expensive screensaver ever to trying to compete with big-budget drama and incorporating the C-word in a way that's palatable to mass audiences. My name's Chad and Hunter. I'm a, uh, a wildlife filmmaker. I'm an executive producer with Wild Bear Entertainment in Brisbane, Australia. Tell us a little bit about uh, Wild Bear. What, what would we know the company for, and what, what's uh, what's on your development slate in this in this genre at the moment? Yeah, Wild Bear are one of the largest independent production companies in Australia, with a, with a quite eclectic slate and kind of punch above their weight in the history genres a lot. I have joined them, obviously bringing a, a fair amount of natural history experience. Uh, from the BBC and from Bristol. And Wild Bear do some exciting projects in that space. One one recently that we did was Playing with Sharks, which was the Valerie Taylor story, which uh, launched at Sundance and has been nominated for Emmys. And that was a very exciting feature doc, which which really merged, I guess, an exciting wildlife story with um, a human interest story. Sharks are big business in uh, natural history. Yeah. It's Nat Geo and Discovery, can't move for sharks. They, they keep selling. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm obviously coming from a, a background of having worked on a lot of the big blockbusters with the BBC and Attenborough, but I think uh, down here with Wild Bear, we obviously have to box clever in terms of what we're, we're looking to sell, looking for different angles into natural history with the streamers. So it might be taking on uh, human stories or slightly more contemporary uh, twists on the genre. So yeah, it's exciting to be working with a company that has that flexible mindset to really delve into, into different genres and genre bending so apart from sharks um what uh, what current trends i mean you, you maybe touched on it a little bit there actually what sort of trends are you are you seeing in the natural history genre at the moment what's the direction of travel yeah well i think i think traditionally the the big uh wildlife blockbuster series one tv critic i remember once called them the world's most expensive screensaver and i think for a while it was okay for us to be timeless with them but i think now there is a real pressure to be timely as well and so i think it's it's, it's finding ways to have a slightly more contemporary spin on, on the story, whether that's via a human angle, something like my octopus teacher, or whether it's via aspects like science and graphics. An example on Disney recently is Supernatural that's coming up, where they're kind of really, really turning into that slightly magical take on what happens behind the scenes in nature. I guess there's also been a, a quite strong shift in conservation being allowed in big entertainment pieces and I think that's really important about a decade ago when we made the first planet earth conservation was called the c word and you wouldn't get one word of it in those big series and now you look across all the big uh, broadcasters Disney Nat Geo BBC Netflix not one of them would do a big natural history series without conservation sustainability climate woven into the fabric of those those big offerings now and that's fantastic that's that's really refreshing one of the things I've just thought of with them um, I think a lot of people talked about how technology has changed in the evolution of, of natural history filmmaking, things like moving from HD to 4K, low light cameras, drones, you name it. But I think something that the, the press hasn't quite talked about as much is the evolution in storytelling. I really think that we have tried to compete more and more with the big drama blockbusters. Uh, when we made Planet Earth 2, it was the first time we'd ever worked with Hans Zimmer as a composer. And it was very exciting, but it was just an, a small example of how we were, I guess, 
stealing into a bit of that that big box set drama space and using some of those same devices. So I think that I think that element of storytelling, that real dramatic. Um, and I love it when I get to the end of a big wildlife show and, and a viewer turns to me and says, "God, I'm I'm exhausted <laughs> watching that." It really is. That's that's an emotional roller coaster ride that that we try and take viewers on now, where traditionally wildlife documentaries wouldn't have really bothered with that level of storytelling. I guess you need to do that because, like the Holy Grail, I presume at one point was finding and filming a new behavior or something that had never been seen before but exactly, that's that exactly. must be really almost borderline impossible now right with all the it, filming that's mm-hmm. been done you can't yeah, sort of it, move things on in that way yeah over over yeah 10 only 10 15 years ago it was enough to just go out and show people a great white shark leaping out of the water in slow motion because no one had ever seen it or uh, or a wolf hunt from a stabilized aerial camera because nobody had ever seen it and i think we rested on that laurel that there was always going to be a new animal to show people and i think now that us so many more broadcasters want to have the same product everybody wants their own version of planet earth it means that nine out of ten of the stories that you're seeing in these big series uh we feel like we've seen before and that's because we have another thing that that slightly has kept us on our toes has been the rise of obviously digital recording in the hands of the every person these days someone can go on safari with an iphone capture something spectacular and it's all over youtube within minutes uh whereas it used to be that those attenborough shows coming out once every four years was the only place you could see that content. So yeah, it, you hit the nail on the head, Clive. It really is that we've had to find different ways to shape those stories and and give the viewer a different experience or a more heightened experience with the natural world. Pretty, pretty heartbreaking if you spend four years in the field and uh, somebody captures something on an iPhone on their Tell me about it. South African holiday. <laughs> They're often filming over your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the, the climate change, the conservation used to be called the C word and stuff like that how do you tell that story um for a mass audience so that you know the program remains entertaining it doesn't feel like you're lecturing and hectoring people how do you how do you tell that story for a mass audience first of all and then how do you tell it in this age of quotes alternative facts where even when it's blindingly obvious and it's like literally happening outside my window in london here and you can see it people yeah. are still denying that it's a it's a thing and you know the climate <clears throat> of the world has changed all the time this is, you know, you're, you're making it up. How do you tell it to a mass audience, and how do you tell it to the non-believers? I guess is the question. Yeah, I think I think you use, have to use a little bit of uh, nuance and stealth in some ways. We sometimes call it the the Trojan horse uh, methodology, where I would never start off by pitching a film called The Climate Crisis or Deforestation. Or I mean, you, you've lost seventy five percent of your viewers right up front. But what viewers respond to, or audiences, just humans in general, is is great storytelling. And I think that's generally the way in. You've got to have uh, intrigue, you've got to have hooks, you've got to have suspense, you might have goodies you think are baddies, baddies you think are goodies, you might have uncertainty. And there are a lot of devices that that storytellers, writers, filmmakers, you know, would have used for years. And I think that's the way that you need to get to a mass audience. I, I think if, if someone can be hooked on an amazing story, whether that's following an individual who has some incredible challenge or or even an animal, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the story is but I think if you hook them with a great story then you can kind of weave in some of that messaging and
and information in a slightly more stealthy way. This is if you want to reach mass audiences, which is what you're talking about. Uh, as I said, you know, the more you make it pointy, as in polemic, you'll start off with a much smaller audience. And so I think, as I, as I mentioned, some of these big glossy wildlife shows that that the, the Disney's, BBC's, Netflix's, Apple do these days, conservation and these issues are woven in there, but it is done in a more subtle way. Uh, and I, I, I think there still is a sense that people would respect a lot of a lot of big broadcasters to be offering them the truth. I think if people are going to turn away from science and you know come up with their own, you know, we're living in an era of conspiracy theories and an insanely wide selection of media of all sorts of <laughs> disrepute and and you know fact bending. So it's hard it's hard to compete with that. It's, it's um, you know we, we can still do things glossy. We can still bring people in with an, an with appointment to watch TV. And I think at the very top of the major broadcasters, there still is a lot of care about the truth. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to work. How you're gonna how, how you're gonna compete with rogue treatments of the truth? That's a challenge. How frustrating is it? Because I mean, you're right at the forefront of this. The stuff that you've filmed over the years, you'll have seen the change firsthand yeah, and more than absolutely. most people. How frustrating is it when you, you that narrative is is going on? Do you, know, do you just want to sort of pick people up and shake them almost? <laughs> well, y- yeah, it's it. You could you could bang your head against a wall. Uh, you know, we've all got friends and family members and people we know. Who, who might see it differently. I think you can waste a lot of energy trying to convince someone, you know, who might be holding on to a conspiracy theory or not, not wanting to listen to science. I would focus much more on the big players that make a difference. And this is the, this is the governments and corporations and a lot more in our filmmaking, we are working alongside big corporations or, or governments to really enact the decisions that will save the planet. There'll always be people out on the street that you're not going to convince uh, one way or another, but we could waste a lot of breath trying to convince people one by one. So, you know, putting products out there and 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 telling these stories the more we can and finding interesting ways to tell these stories to hook people in is a very good way of trying to turn those that, that are open-minded and will listen. But I think what we are seeing gradually, um, humans sometimes take a while to get there, but we, what we are seeing is most global governments coming to a consensus that something needs to be done and the more I talk to corporations uh, in in my line of work the more I hear that that corporate responsibility will also affect some of those big decisions we'll we'll see things like fossil fuels disappear before our grandkids are driving those cars whereas 10 15 years ago we, we might have debated that so I think I think change is happening but yeah but, but convincing your, your cousin who's on the conspiracy websites that's a, that's a trickier one one of the, the sort of contradictions, if you like, of, of natural history filmmaking is that it's it's there to shine a light on that issue, but also it often involves putting crews and kit on aeroplanes and flying them around the world. It's, it's it doesn't it doesn't kind of sit together. During the pandemic, I, I did interviews with natural history filmmakers who said that one thing that the pandemic and the travel restrictions that came with it might achieve is the use of more local crews and the upskilling of local <clears throat> crews, which would be a benefit on. The 
the other side of this. As we come out of the pandemic or pretend that we've come out of the pandemic and the travel restrictions are dropped, has that actually happened or has everybody just got back on the plane and gone back to doing it as they were before? No, I think I think we have really seen a bit of a paradigm shift there and it's, it's been refreshing and fantastic for being egalitarian, spreading more of the opportunities. And so often in a tight little genre like this, a lot of the work is quite nepotistic, quite kind of insular. It's about, you're often working with people you're familiar with, people you trust. And often it's about local operators trying to get that first opportunity. And what we've seen through the pandemic is an amazing array of new local voices, local skills pop up. And once they're seen to be trusted with one story, then it really opens the floodgates for, for using those operators more, which is brilliant. On the flip side of that, I would I'd push back a little bit on the, the, the notion that wildlife filmmaking as a genre is a very carbon heavy <laughs> footprint. Because I mean, when I see a Hollywood film set or a commercial film set with 50, 100 people craft fans, you name it, for what, a, a 30-second car ad. You compare that to a, a, the average wildlife film crew, which might be one one director, one camera operator, living in a tent for six weeks, eating baked beans to try and film a snow leopard or a polar bear or something. And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a staggeringly skinny footprint. And all of us ha- make a carbon footprint. There's no getting a- around it. So I sometimes find the argument is slightly, not so much misguided, we all should be responsible for our carbon footprint. But for anyone who drives drives to work, uh, who has to drive to work and can't afford an electric car yet, um, you, you know, we still have to accept that there's good use and bad use of a carbon footprint. Uh, I mean, if nobody traveled and nobody flew to go and film a snow leopard or a polar bear or a tiger, and we could never bring those images into people's homes, then would that be better? I mean, the fact that two people can go and 500 million people can see that footage and some can be up in arms about wanting to save the polar bear, that is actually a phenomenal result. I, I would argue that's a very good use of that, that small carbon footprint i mean having said that uh you know bring on electric planes hallelujah you know let's 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 hope we can reduce the footprint further it's often i mean not always but but often wildlife filmmaking is is long lead times and and quite big budget the shows that you mentioned that you've worked on before probably what three or four years worth of work yeah. have gone into those series with the economic problems it looks like we're going to have in general and the industry in particular netflix subs declining is there a concern that the money won't be there for that and you're going to have to it's the genre is going to have to diversify into sort of more episodes for smaller budgets or is it one of those genres that you know it's a tv staple it's been around like since yeah. the dawn of the bbc it's just there's always going to be that that money there for it yeah well it, it's an incredibly robust genre uh, natural history it, it travels incredibly well because you can put different languages on it it ages well it cuts across demographic. It really is, I kind of consider it one of those absolute foundation genres that if everything shrunk in the industry and we were left with a few little genres on that desert island, it would be things like sport or cooking or, and I'd have put natural history up there. It's a very, a very instinctual interest that people have, even from a young age, whether it's an interest in how your pet's brain works to having that sense of escapism by watching wildebeest migrate. There's something that, that people will be drawn to that interest 
interest in nature, uh, even if it's an escapist type feeling that we have in a time of a, of a pandemic. So I think it, it will it'll always be there in terms of the, in the human heart and its interest. It'll be interesting to see how the, the big broadcasters do spend their pennies moving forward. I think what we've been seeing for a few years is a slight stretch, if you like, between the big blockbusters are being protected, but they want them, you know, the, the, the phrase fewer, bigger, better has been around for a while. And you're seeing the likes of the of the Netflix, the Disney's, the uh, you know, BBC's and Apple's who will put a lot of money into some of those, those really, really big shows. And they've got to have an appointment to watch. If it's not Attenborough, then it's often a Hollywood celebrity these days, but they really are trying to make a massive splash. At the other end, there is obviously still a need to fill channel space because we have more channels broadcasting in more forms than ever before. Uh, and so there's, a, there's an interest in finding those slightly cheaper, cheerful, repeatable series, whether it's uh, archive shows or whether it's wildlife vets or crocodile hunters, you name it, shows that, that really can stretch. I think what we have seen is a slight um, hollowing out of the middle budgets in between. And I think that's been a bit harder for those producers that work in that space of the, of the, uh, the slightly more limited series. Um, there's, been, there's been a little bit less of that. So I think, I think the broadcasts are tending towards cheaper filler in, in volume and and really, really big grand pieces. Has there been um, any fallout or have you seen any results for you guys from the Discovery HBO um, slamming together? Um, Discovery, obviously, big commissioner or, or buyer of, of yep. wildlife content, possibly at that cheaper, cheerful end. Um, quite a valuable buyer for, for production companies coming together with HBO. Is that a sort of big player with, with big budgets or is we've heard things about commissioning freezes and you know the merger's not going very yeah. well like that. I just wonder have you have you personally at your company noticed sort of any effect from that well I think I think uh, you know Discovery have a, a an incredibly famous brand worldwide and a big part of that is the natural history that they've shown over the years often this has come from BBC products but uh, it really has been part of the Discovery brand and so I think I think certainly you know, everyone's aware of that HBO Discovery it, it won't they won't ever give up on that I think it will be there's often turnover at, at the the top of any major broadcaster and people wanting to I guess stamp a new mark on it uh, but certainly I wouldn't see it as a genre that they would give up on at all as I said it's it's a it's a sanctuary genre it's a place that viewers turn to in troubled times uh, you know we've seen a lot of that recently and so I think you know there will be some some coughs and splutters and stops and starts with with some of the the streamers uh, you know growing and shrinking but I don't I don't see in the long run I don't see it there being a kind of a radical turning away from the genre but certainly by anyone that's associated with the brand discovery I think it'll still be part of their DNA and uh, finally what's next from you guys I always ask producers this and it's usually lots of things they can't tell me about yeah no well we're, we're working on some, uh, some 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 exciting shows about creatures that haven't had much of a limelight we're doing a, a, a very beautiful film about platypus which is one of the has to be one of the world's weirdest animals that everybody yes. knows about but you ask people whether they've seen a platypus film I, I assure you there, there aren't any so it's really really fun to be back home in Australia making something about a, a globally famous animal that people haven't seen and it has quite a human a human angle to that film uh, penguins too is something that Australia has that a few people don't don't realize live on on the the driest dustiest continent on the planet but penguins are a wonderful character species that that viewers return to over and over and as a primatologist myself with a, with a career in primates um, you know, you can look out for some some things in that space, monkeys and apes and things. So that's something that I've, I love doing. But yeah, we're kind of got a few things coming up. Some 
Australian-based and some uh, more global ideas. Chad and Hunter. Now over to Nico Franks to introduce our next interview. Melanie Rumani oversees a team of 14 people who acquire content for 37 different services across the globe for channels including BBC Earth, BBC Brit and BBC First outside of the UK and channels in the UK such as Dave, Drama, Alibi and W. Having taken up the newly created role of Global Head of Acquisitions for both BBC Studios and UK TV in 2020, Melanie and her team procure tens of thousands of hours annually from key indie distributors, US studios and producers globally, from finished productions to pre-sales. Melanie and her team have been making the most of the programming crossover between UK TV and BBC Studios channels. From shared scripted fare for UK TV's Alibi and Drama channels and BBC First, to factual titles for UK TV channels Dave, W Yesterday, as well as BBC Earth and Eden. Melanie spoke to C21 about the programming that's working well on the channels, both at home and abroad, and how its streaming service UK TV Play is opening up opportunities for her team to acquire different kinds of content. I head up a team of 14 of us who acquire uh, content for our 37, I think it is now, uh, different services across the globe. Yes, to take me through those um, kind of as succinctly as possible, because that's <laughs> sure. a lot of networks. So that includes obviously channels in the UK, but yep. also the BBC Studios channels abroad. Correct. So they're all BBC branded channels outside of the UK. So BBC Earth, BBC First, BBC Brit, BBC Lifestyle, uh, and CBeebies, actually, which is our preschool channel, which you know of here in the UK. And then all the UK TV channels here as well. Um, Alibi, Drama, Yesterday, Gold, Dave, Eden a broad remit across all of those channels and we have different channels in different territories outside of the UK but most territories have every channel in them pretty much. And BBC Studios posted some really strong financials recently and part of that was down to original production and the production it's doing. So how is that impacting the acquisitions and the number of acquisitions that uh, you're looking to make? So BBC Studios Productions, um, we do pick up for some of our channels, depending on what the what they are and whether they're right for our channels. I wouldn't say it impacts hugely on uh, what we're acquiring for our channels outside of the UK. Uh, we've, you know, we've got a long wish list of content that we buy, so we buy from lots of different suppliers including BBC Studios. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a really, you know, great year, obviously, for BBC Studios as they posted, and particularly the channels have been doing really well. And a lot of that's down to, you know, great distribution teams that sell those channels in, but also we've, we've been acquiring some great content too. So, yeah, take me through some of those highlights. Yeah, sure. So here in the UK, some of the highlights uh, with, you know, lots. <laughs> we've acquired a lot. For UK TV, Sister Boniface Mysteries has done really well for us. So um, that's come through BBC Studios. We've also had uh, CSI Vegas, which is you know a pretty big acquisition outside out of the US. Really well known brand. Everyone knows CSI Vegas. Being able at CSI and being able to get the Vegas spin-off was great for us. So that's launched on Alibine. That's doing well as well. Um, all sorts of shows, Property Brothers, Abandoned Engineering, you know, these shows keep doing really well for us. 
And also outside of the uh, UK, we've acquired lots of first-run drama that we uh, buy here from distributors. So pretty much any drama you could name that's done really well in the UK over the last year, you know, we've been able to acquire it for our channels outside, for Benelux, Africa, Poland, um, and, you know, lots lots of dramas and lots of content. We, we have really we have great access while well, we acquire all the brilliant um, big brands that you see here in the UK as well. So in Africa, we pick up all of Jamie Oliver, Grand Designs. All of these shows do really well for us um, and we continue to commit to those. You know, we've, we've had a really good year and it's just kept getting more and more exciting the more services we launch. There's more opportunity to acquire different kinds of content. Yeah, I think it was over 100 distributors uh, when you spoke yeah. to C21 last year that you mentioned you you deal with yeah we do we deal with a lot I mean you know the most of our business is done with the key indies but we do also deal with a lot of producers and smaller distributors as well and we've got really good relationships across the board um and but yeah I think it was something like 80 to 90 suppliers we've we've done deals with over the past year now um, plus, we're just always talking to more as well, just to just to keep across development slates and keep the conversation going. And how, because obviously this year, I think a big defining part of it for many in the industry has been able to go out to events again. Yeah. So how has that been affecting uh, what you've been able to see, what you've been acquiring and what you're looking for? Um, I don't think it's affected the buying process, particularly, I think being able to do everything on Zoom was great during the pandemic. Uh, so didn't really feel like being back has necessarily impacted that. What it has been great for is obviously relationships and being able to see people face to face, being able to see your colleague, you know, fellow buyers and just chat. And it's it makes a really big difference to be there in person together. And I was at the LA screenings this year and, you know, you could see everyone was very excited to be together. Um, it was a real, there was a real buzz about it. I guess probably just, it's just quite interesting to see how much the industry has changed in the past two or three years, really. You know, the pandemic's really accelerated a lot of that change. The obvious one, I guess, being the, the studios moving to a year round development model. And it works, you know, instead of everything being launched a pilot season, it's kind of year round. So that does mean that some, I mean, that's always the way we've worked as a team. So it's not a big change for us, but I guess some studios are going to have to adapt to how they're selling content. So it'll be quite interesting. Um, just notice there's a lot, a lot more non-US content was screened as well at LA screenings, which I thought was great. Sort of the quality was really good, but yeah, no, it's just it's just really nice to be back in person, and I, and I know we're all really excited for MIPCOM, but it hasn't really changed how we've done business, I wouldn't say. And on that, the, the greater amount of non-US programming that was at the LA screenings, Kevin from Accounts, that was one show that lots of buyers I spoke to. Spoke it was great. About. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I haven't seen it. But yeah, just from what I've heard. And I'm wondering, you know, where I'm going to be able to see it. So is that something, you know, is it a show that you've got your eye on? Um, we haven't put it on our list, to be honest. Um, there's probably nowhere that it's a really obvious fit for us. I thought it was a great show. 
it's good it's good fun yeah yeah really good um and i'm looking forward to someone picking that up as well because i want to keep watching it so does that kind of speak to your content needs because obviously that's an out and out dr- uh, an out and out comedy it is um, we're not necessarily no we are picking comedy up um it's just the right it's the right kind of comedy and really it would just be for dave it's about whether that kind of ticks the boxes of what we're looking for. But in terms of other content needs, you know, we're always looking for drama. So that's what we tend to go to the LA screenings looking for is that uh, fresh US drama, procedural generally, crime generally. So, you know, there were a few things that we we like to look off there in LA, but just broadly the kind of content, the kind of content we're looking for in the drama space is soft crime you know, period dramas, and those are the, the the two big genres that resonate in the UK and globally, really. You know, things like Miss Scarlet and the Duke, Sister Boniface Mysteries, which I've mentioned. Those are the shows that we're kind of targeting, and we also have pre-sale discussions on as well. So Miss Scarlet and the Duke, you know, we're, we're right in there very early with um, PBS on that show and we work really closely with the producer on it and we're always looking for you know interesting ways of um being able to to put together shows like that so you know we're we're always having a lot of conversations around pre-sales particularly obviously for our uk channels but a lot of what we're talking about also works outside of the uk for our bbc first channel so we will try and get bbc first in there as well where it makes sense um, that's kind of broad on the drama. You know, we're also looking for really premium content as well, obviously. Then, you know, there is a, a lot of premium drama out there. But in terms of what we're kind of focused on, I use the example of CSI Vegas. So, you know, we would look um, to the US studios for that super premium content in the UK for the UK channels. Not so much outside of the UK. We really only take British content outside of the UK. But what we're what we have outside of the UK is the ability to pick up, you know, the BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four dramas, and and turn those around quite close to the UKTX. Other unscripted content we're looking for always on the hunt for character led adventure and travel. So a show called Exploration Volcano, something similar to that. Motoring content, so that resonates again across Dave, BBC Earth, BBC Brit. You know, we can find common alignment there. Also looking for engineering docs, engineering formatted docs, series. So those work quite, those work well for yesterday and for Earth and Brit as well in our other territories. In terms of the more kind of aspirational female skewed shows, I guess you could say, for W. And BBC Lifestyle, they probably have the most kind of crossover in terms of wish lists. So they're always looking for high quality volume series. And it's really important that they're very warm and authentic, those series. And we kind of feel the same way for BBC Lifestyle. But that's important for W. Um, We're also doing a lot of work now looking at uh, targets for UK TV play. So, you know, that's really ramped up. That's very important for us now. So we're, so we're out there hunting for, you know, a wide variety of titles for UKTV play, actually. So whether it's from well-known high-volume archive drama that may not have had recent exposure but is still well-known, that, you know, things like Bad Girls. Um, and then we're, we're also still looking for exclusive brand-new content 
as well, UK TV Play. And, you know, it's a really exciting time, actually, UK TV Play. We're really excited about the direction that's going in. There seems to be, it's not really a trend because it has been a thing for a while, but celebrity fronted factual or unscripted shows in the UK. There's yeah. a real boom for that. And obviously talent now migrating from online to doing that more and more. Yeah. Do you, are there issues with, you know, how well those people might not be known in the territories, you know, outside of the UK for you? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think every broadcaster outside of the UK would say that, um, you know, there could be some talent that's just not known. But, you know, we also do a lot to build talent. So, you know, we've got Stacey Dooley, Louis Theroux, you know, on a number of channels outside of the UK. And, you know, Stacey, uh, I mean, both amazing talent, um, but they wouldn't have been known before we put them on our channel, you know, and we've grown them. And, you know, the what, what's great is they make great content and they keep making great content. If it's someone that's really unknown, it would have to depend on the topic that's being covered. And if that topic resonates, then that's fine. But if it's a topic that doesn't resonate and it's talent that is not necessarily known, we probably wouldn't pick it up. We're seeing a lot of footballers getting kind of making that move, you know, after their playing careers. Yeah. I suppose, you know, footballers, football is an international brand. So maybe that's an area where there could be crossover. Yes. Yep. So I think we picked up class of 92. I think we picked up the Rio documentary. Well, that was an amazing documentary. Yeah, we picked that up in a couple of territories as well, from memory. On the UK TV play, so do those shows that you acquire exclusively for, for the VOD platform, do they have to fall into a specific kind of brand? When they're scheduling and thinking about play, they are thinking about the brands, the channel brands, but also looking at what else we could expand out to. And, you know, that's really ramping up now. That strategy is really ramping up. So there's a whole new VOD team, brilliant um, UK TV play team. So, you know, all of that strategy is being worked on now and it's, yeah, really exciting. So there will be, you know, we'll be looking to acquire a lot more content, UK TV play. And does that, so yeah, exclusivity as well, because obviously, you know, You've got Netflix now and Paramount Plus, you know, recently launched in the UK. So that market's fiercer and fiercer. So would you be happy sharing across those platforms? It depends on the title. It depends. It really does. It depends on the title. So that's a conversation we have about every single title. Um, there are some things that we won't budge on, but there are some things that we, it, we are open and it really just depends how it goes and what what the appetite is for the exclusivity. And on the procedural genre that you were talking about, there was that fairly recent announcement about Criminal Minds coming back for Paramount Plus in the US. And I suppose it'll be interesting to see. And that's kind of got serialized elements, I think, that they're bringing in because it is for a streamer. So do yeah. you see that genre kind of evolving in line with the studios and their, their streaming services? Yeah, yeah, I think it is, definitely. I mean, procedurals are very handy. It's just very handy having those shows in the schedule and on VOD services because people just like to dip in and out of that. So, yeah, I'm not surprised it's come back at all. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more of that. How about so W? So that went free to air. So how has its, uh, how has its needs changed since then? I mean, that it, it hasn't really. Their needs haven't changed really. I mean, probably the biggest move has been to more genuine human moments. So it's it's really focused 
a channel that's focused now on authenticity and warmth. I think I said that before. So it's that's at the heart of everything when we go looking for content for, for W. And, you know, it was moving that way anyway. So moving to free hasn't really changed that. We're not looking for different kinds of content, just needs to hit that brief. So Life Unfiltered is its tagline, I think, now. It's also available on UK TV Play now, of course, because uh, it's now free. So that's also exciting and opens up another potential genre on play. But, yeah, no, it hasn't It hasn't changed dramatically. And so we're fully into the second half of 2022 now. So what are kind of some of the priorities for the rest of the year and markets, events? So you mentioned MIPCOM. So what will you be kind of heading there with the, at the top of your mind? At the top of my mind is probably VOD. <laughs> it's just ensuring that, you know, we're keeping across what's going on in the market because it's constantly changing. And just, you know, having those conversations with people and second half of this year is very much going to be focused on, for me, UKTV Play, um, really helping the team support the growth of UKTV Play, obviously keeping all of those other services happy, um, making sure that we're getting our hands on the very best content first in most of our markets. So, you know, it's it's been a very busy first half and it doesn't look like it's slowing down at all. <laughs> if anything, it's getting busier, which is great, which is really exciting. And I think MIPCOM is going to be a really good turning point, you know, getting in terms of getting out of the pandemic and starting to feel a little bit more normal. Melanie Romani speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.